Hey there, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to Samira Stalks. This is a podcast about the dreamers out there and their stories of entrepreneurship. So if you're curious, creative, and you're ready to make an impact on this world, then this is for you. Welcome to this episode with me, your host, Samira Sohail. I was joined by Alex Barner, founder of Oscar, a children's bank which works through a mobile app. It started from the premise that kids need to learn good financial spending habits young, as it's often a topic overlooked in the classroom. We'll hear his story of how he's created a playful environment for kids to be in control of their spend. Osper can be used online from apps and games or in physical retail shops too. And he's devised a way for parents to keep the right level of tabs on them too. Enjoy! Hi Alec, welcome to the show. Hi Samira, thanks for having me. In a line, can you tell us what OSPA is? So OSPA is a service that empowers young people to manage money responsibly. So I always like to start with people's background. So both of your parents were accountants growing up. That's correct. I, I guess entrusted you to some extent to start managing money from a young age. I remember being about 11 years old and my parents sat me down and said, Alec, we'd love to talk to you about the P&L of your life. <laughs> At which point, <laughs> age 11, I turned to my parents and said, what's a P and what's an L? And that's exactly why we're having this conversation. So, uh, so what they did was took a pen and paper and explained to me that money coming in and how much was being spent bringing me up. Everything from clothes to school. Uh, and then they did something really interesting. So what they said was they wanted me to start taking responsibility for as much of this money as possible. So uh, they basically set me up a budget, asked me to track it, and it was my responsibility to buy all my clothes. And it was my responsibility for uh, paying for my tennis lessons and for traveling. And so, you know, where, whereas the average 11-year-old right now in the UK gets about 20 to 30 pounds a, a month of pocket money, I was getting about 200 pounds okay. at the age of 11. Uh, but I had to pay for everything. And when that money was gone, it was gone and there was none left. Uh, and so uh, that became the way in which I learned to manage money from a super young age and it just carried on year in year out right the way into university so when I got to university the first thing I did when I got my my loan was to set up a budget because that's what I've been doing since 11 and that's really when it started to hit me that actually everyone around me not only didn't have a budget but they had no clue what they were doing so uh so that's really in some ways the inspiration behind the business from what I understand the idea for Osper came about after watching a textiles talk Brazil. Yes. So yeah, just take us to that moment where you started to really form the business. So I think as with many aha moments entrepreneurs have, it's a combination of something that happens in a split second with the realisation that a lot of your life has been building up up to that moment. So prior to that moment, obviously I'd spent some time working consulting and I'd built budgets which I'd actually end up selling to other business analysts to help them manage their money. Um, whilst at university I trained to be a maths teacher, whilst at McKinsey I worked with children's charities in London, and obviously M-Pesa was an opportunity to work at the cutting edge of how you deliver financial services through mobile phones. So there was this background of, of basically a combination of helping empower young people, teaching them maths, and then working at places like M-Pesa and Spotify, which were all about building simple, intuitive, delightful utilities all delivered through a mobile phone. So against that backdrop, I was, I was sitting there, it was at the beginning of January, um, and I was trying to look for inspiration around companies to set up. And I had an idea I was working on, it was an extension of a previous business idea, and I came across this Brazilian company pitching to a West Coast VC, talking about a company. The company was called Agent Piggy. That was it, Agent Piggy. <laughs> And it was, and it's basically they were pitching a online website for like six, seven, eight-year-olds to teach them to manage money, and it had caricatures in it, lots of pigs of lots of different colours. Like Peppa Pig style. Peppa Pig style, exactly. Um, and you know, their the idea was they were going to build this platform, 
and uh, and then they were going to sell it into schools and to banks and directly to consumers. And at the end of this 15-minute presentation, I had kind of two takeaways. Takeaway one was, oh my God, this is like the biggest problem in the world. Yeah. <laughs> my second takeaway is, oh my God, you're doing this all wrong. <laughs> and and I, I literally locked myself in a room and I didn't move for a couple of days. I just wrote out exactly what I thought this thing needed to do and why and how and what it could achieve. To take us to some of the, the main gateposts of, of where right. it is today. So from the idea to getting our seed round, that was... Um, Wow, almost 15 months. Okay. Which I funded us through that most of that process. Okay. During that time, I had a couple of rounds of conversations with different potential co-founders. Okay. And really never quite found the fit that I was looking for. Uh, and there came a point where I just, I just wanted to make it happen. So I just kind of started doing it on my own. Um, and I found an engineer and then I pulled in a designer and then we entered a hackathon competition in London. And then we won that and we went to San Francisco and we won a global hackathon competition that earned us our first seed round of funding. Before I knew it, the snowball was picking up pace. And how, how did you find that experience of being a sole founder? So the, the challenge you face as a, as a sole founder is really the isolation. Yeah. Um, the lack of having someone in a room who you can turn to and really confide in who understands what's going on at the business on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, the way you manage that is you try and build a trusted network around you, you try and get them as close to the business as you can, and you, and you use them to help fill, fill the gap, just like you would in any, you know, anything in life. So, so in, in our case, I've been quite comfortable bringing in investors and advisors and board members and get them, at times, getting them quite operational in the business, yeah. because actually there's a bit of a gap I'm trying to fill, which is having a sounding board for someone else who understands our business. So our chairman spends a, you know, quite a large portion of time with me, um, one of our other investors, Remus, who you know, spends about a day and a half, a week on the ground with me. So it's really about trying to find ways of filling, filling that gap more than anything else. And let's actually talk about um, where OSPA is today. We haven't, uh, we haven't uh, actually surfaced exact numbers, but we have over 100,000 people, uh, families in the UK using OSPA. Right. So that's pretty exciting for us. I think it's exciting because you go from a world where you know, a service like this didn't exist at all. Yeah. And you know, the belief at the ground was, look, traditional banks are always going to be traditional banks. Parents are always going to give their children cash. There may be a move to giving them credit cards to buy things online. But you're never really going to make a dent in that world. Yeah. Where we've now suddenly got to a scale where people are like, wait, hang on, this is definitely the way forward. Yeah. And that for me is really, you know, really exciting. So to have built a service where a lot of parents and children could have gone up and set up a bank account, but instead of come to us for a paid-for service and are paying for us against a free bank account, I think says huge amounts about the opportunity. Consumer mistake is that you think your bank account is free you're paying for it in different ways the challenge is that they still do think it's free although they're paying for it several ways we will still meet parents who will turn around and say well look why why would i set up an osper account i can go to hsbc and set up a free children's account but what's interesting to me is is that there are parents who look at the service and say wait this is not about banking what you're doing is helping my child grow up to be financially responsible that is invaluable and so really what we're trying to do is educate consumers on the problem we're trying to solve being different to the one banks solve for. Banks go off and help you hold your money for you, access that money, spend that money, keep it safe. We help educate your children on how to make the right decisions with money. And that's a very different value proposition. And that's what drives at the heart of why I think parents are comfortable paying for this service. So what is the official age you can actually get a bank account as a kid? You can set up a bank account alongside your parent with 11 and up with debit card. Um, okay. You can actually get a savings account uh, or even a current account 
from, from birth on, but your parents are part of that process. Okay. You become, so the debit card starts from 11 and the legal ownership for all banks by 18. And so then from what I understand, Osper, you can set it up as young as six, is that right? Uh, eight. Eight. Why that, that, that demographic in particular? Why eight? Yeah, why well, did you go for that? I mean, I, I think... And like, why is a bank 11? You know, yeah. these are arbitrary numbers, but is there something behind that? But, no, they are actually okay, they are actually arbitrary, arbitrary numbers. numbers. They are actually arbitrary numbers. <laughs> so you know, the bank the bank would have made a judgment call about the it, for them. It's always about balancing risk out. Yeah. And you know, the risk with giving they would have felt with giving a debit card under the way bank accounts are structured to someone under the age eleven was a reputational risk, was a risk of misuse, okay. and without putting the appropriate guidelines and security in place. You can understand why they may have made that decision. Whereas for us, you know, we have instant visibility for parents when children spend. Parents can control whether a card can be used online or not. They can lock it if it's ever lost. So we put it's prepaid, so you can never be overdrawn. So you have all these safety measures in place, which allows us to say that actually we should be trying to get this product out to children as young as possible. Because the younger we start engaging children in the conversation of responsible money management, the better. So eight was the age we agreed with our partners. Um, over time, I'd like to drop that to even even younger age, yeah. because ultimately, if you're four or five today, you know you you grew up with a tablet or a smartphone around you by the month, by the time you were six months old. And if we can get money delivered, money and experience in education, and money delivered through a digital experience when you're two and three, the likelihood will succeed over using cash much higher. And so let's actually talk about some of the educational aspects of what Oscar's trying to do. So children in the UK and particularly growing up now will have grown up in a time of some of the worst debt ratios and you know, a very unstable economic environment. So just to kind of quantify the problem here, in the UK, about 31% of adults fail to save. And when I say fail to save, I don't mean they don't put aside a proportion of their income every month. I mean, literally, they have zero savings. So 31% uh, of the UK population fail to save, absolutely fail to save any money whatsoever. Um, about 50% of UK households don't have a budget. Uh, the 50% who do, half of them don't stick to their budget. So 75% of people either don't have a budget or can't stick to a budget. So you know, we have got a mass endemic problem here yeah. around money management. And as you say, the financial world is getting more and more complicated. I think what we need to ask ourselves is what do we need to do to solve this problem? And then understand who are the best placed people to solve that, to kind of deliver that solution. So for me, the way you measure counteracting that problem is you, you can say, we as a country can make statements like, that we have a million 16-year-olds in the UK who save regularly. We have a million 18-year-olds who know how to put money aside and never ever spend more money than what's in their bank account. Um, we have a million 11-year-olds who log into a banking service every month to check their balance. So if we're able to make actually what are product-led statements almost about mm. our population, I think we start to solve the problem at a young age. What we're doing is basically building good habits. Yeah. So the question then is who are the best place people to build like lifelong habits yeah. about how you spend money? So let's look at analogies. You don't have formal education to learn to ride a bike. You don't have formal education to learn to ride a car. You don't have formal education to learn habits. You know, these are good habits, like being polite. You know, these things start at home through observation. So teaching things through school, I think, are great. And there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't do formal education through school. But transferring education to habits um, actually is something, whether we like it or not, children do pick up from their parents. And so, actually, when, it's, when we come to responsibility, I think the responsibility lies across the board. 
but really the source of where children today learn how they're going to spend and, and save yeah. is from their parents. Yeah. And here's where it gets really concerning. So if you run the surveys for children, about 82% of children say they expect to learn about money from their parents. So you ask children what they expect, yeah. they expect. Now, the killer stat is that over 90% of their parents don't feel confident, comfortable and confident teaching their children about money. Because they were never taught. Because they were never taught. So at, to your point, actually, I, you know, I feel that there's absolutely place in schools and there is a um, there's a movement um, globally to try and make financial education a part of school curriculums. The UK is leading the way, but even folks in the UK will say that we're having a problem. Why? Teachers don't know how to manage money, so they struggle to teach students how to manage money. So it's, it's endemic on both sides. But you know, I feel like... The, Alec, it, I'm feeling a Peppa Pig series. There <laughs> <laughs> might be. Maybe we should speak to the Asian piggy guys. Who knows? Um, but there definitely is something that needs to be happening in schools. But alongside that, the question is, what's the learning by doing mechanism? Yeah. And I think for me, that's about helping parents deliver messages. Now... Because you have a set of parents who don't know how to do this, you need to educate the educators. And we need to do it in a way that's simple. Because if you're a mum, you've got two teenage boys, you're working, late 30s, I can guarantee taking time out of your life to try and teach your child to manage money, which is something you don't know how to do yourself, it's going to be a stretch. So actually, it needs to be super easy. Super easy. So at the heart of it, we need to take what is something what is quite complicated and boil it down to a very simple interface, which keeps that lesson going on as children grow up in a way which parents feel is is something they can get over very quickly. Go back to your time at M-Pesa because I think looking at the developing world and how some of the fintech services are, you know, where they have almost a clean slate to develop a system from scratch because there's not necessarily institutional infrastructure there. Um, can you talk about some of those experiences that's shaped OSPA today? Uh, absolutely. So just to give you a bit of background on M-Pesa, M-Pesa is a really simple way to allow one person with a mobile phone in Kenya to send money to another person. Uh, PESA is a Swedish really word for money, M stands for mobile, so it's mobile money effectively. And, it, and the way it works is as, uh, as someone, let's say, living in Nairobi, so let's say I'm a 22-year-old boy, I'm living in Nairobi, earning money, and I want to send money home to my mum, who lives in a, in a village. I'd go to a shop, I'd give them the cash, yeah. they'd transfer that cash into money onto a wallet, onto my phone. Um, I would then literally, on my phone, type in my mum's number, type in the amount I want to send, put in a pin and send money, and it's all gone in seconds. We need um, this here. And we need this here. And we need this here. So, so, by the way, when I say phone, I'm not talking about an iPhone. When I was out there, 80% of the population had feature phones. Mm. So we're talking about sending messages and mobile banking through text SMS, message, SMS yeah. and USSD. So the, um, that's really exciting, really interesting that they've managed to build something that's reached such scale through something as simple as SMS. And the question is, why is that taken off? And PESA, when I arrived out in Nairobi had 15 million customers on the platform. Um, the largest bank in Kenya had 3 million customers, and PESA had launched under five years before that. Okay. So in five years' time, they got non-existent, yeah. five times bigger than the biggest bank in Kenya. Um, and the pretty the most interesting issue of why, what happened, how yeah. did that happen? We and it came down to something very simple. When M-Pesa launched, it actually failed. And it launched as a service to help microfinance initiatives in Nairobi distribute mm. money to women in Nairobi. And after three months, they went and checked how many people were using the service, and the numbers were really low. But something bizarre was happening, which is that in villages in Kenya, people were turning up at shops which sold Safaricom top-ups. So Safaricom mm. is a company who owns M-Pesa, and saying, hi, I've got some money on my phone, can I please have it off? Oh, and give me the cash. Give me the cash. So, um, so, so the, this all got back to the head office, and the head office said, why have, why have these mums in rural Kenya got this money when we gave it to women in 
in the city. Mm. And what they realised was that these women were sending money back home. Okay. And the reason they were doing that was because up until that point, the alternative was to take the cash, yeah. put it in a bag, lock it up, put two padlocks on it, get on a 24-hour minibus ride, yeah. spend money on travel and food, get to the other side, dump the cash in a bed, yeah. have the cash hidden in the garden. Compare that to sending a text message. Uh, and the thing blew up and it absolutely exploded, unsurprisingly. So when they, they revamped it, pivoted, and, uh, and branded the, ser- the service M-Pesa Send Money Home, and the thing went viral, uh, absolutely blew up. So to your point or your question, what have we learned? I, you know, I think the thing we've learned is whilst you may have lots of things that you ultimately want to teach children, you need to start with a need, a really clear problem, which is actually just very functional but solves a deep problem that many consumers have. Yeah. And you can build a platform from there. So in our case, the problem we're trying to solve for is setting up a children's bank account is a nightmare. If you today are a mum and you have a 11-year-old daughter, you will need to go into branch You'll need, you know, utility statements, bank statements, birth certificates. Mm. It'll take at least two, if not three trips. At the end of the whole process, what you'll get is an old school bank account where your child needs to go into a branch to deposit money and you have no way of sending the money yeah. and there's no mobile app to kind of monitor the whole service. That's just, that's like stuck in, in the 1990s, basically. So mm. it's adult banking from the 1990s. So we said, well, what if we just go and fix that problem? Let's, let's make that the starting point because we know that every child in this country, by the time they're 18, have a bank account. So we're going to service a need rather than a want. This is yeah. going to be a painkiller rather than being a vitamin, as it were. Yeah. And from there, we'll build out like all the services that we want, which we think is what actually parents and children genuinely want, which is education and independence and empowerment. And then, so you mentioned earlier the commercial model behind Ausfair. So yeah. at the moment, it's a subscription service. <coughs> exactly. And uh, yeah, just talk us through some of the thinking behind that. Why that model and why not a more yeah traditional bank model of charging through fees or whatever it might have been. So uh, at the moment when you sign up online, there's two options. Either you pay £24 a year per child yeah. up front or you pay £2.50 a month. So it's like okay. discount for paying for a year. And as part of that, you get a full set of features, everything from making the service really simple right the way through to all the educational features. We have some additional charges which are designed to cover our costs. So for example, we charge if you make an instant load, it takes under three seconds to load money, but we charge 50p to cover our costs. Okay. Um, and to your point around you know, why that type of approach, well, ultimately we wanted to make sure we built a, a business. <laughs> and you know, the, way, the way banks have worked today is quite simple, which is that in the, you know, the 70s and 80s, there was a stampede to try and win every bank account in this country. And the way they did that was they gave away the product, just like anyone does when there's a, a, a market grab, grabbing situation. Then, once you've given away a free product, it's pretty hard to charge for it. So they said, how are we going to make money? Well, the only way we can make money is two things. If you make mistakes with your money, we'll charge you for them. A, or B, we'll cross-sell your other products. Suddenly, you have a complete misalignment between the way a company makes money and the needs of its consumers. Yeah. Uh, and so at the heart of Osper, the question we were trying to ask ourselves is, how do you build a company which makes more money the better it is at achieving its mission? Which kind of sounds very intuitive. So I was like, well... If we get better at teaching children to manage money, can we just get make more money? And the only way of really achieving that is to charge parents for the service. Okay. The banks in the UK uh, are going through a journey themselves of tackling this. Some yeah. are pretty far behind and culturally not quite ready to accept the fact that they need to charge for banking, but also recognise that every overdraft now has to be arranged. They can't yeah. be unarranged overdraft fees. FX fees are being clamped down on. Net credit interest will get clamped down on. Packaged accounts that don't make sense are being clamped down on. So, so I think all the banks eventually will get to a world where they appreciate that you have to align your interests with your customers. Yeah, and actually let's go on to that point of like what 21st century banking looks like. I'll probably start by going back to first principles, right? People are always going to want things that are simpler, 
clearer, cheaper, quicker than what they have today. You know, Amazon is building the whole of its company based on that premise. If it can get you something in 30 minutes rather than three hours, if it can cost you a pound rather than two, then yeah. they will win. Yeah. So w- when you think about the banking world and where it's going, ultimately, so long as you know you follow the money, then customers' money will go where it's simpler, fairer, cheaper, quicker, more convenient. So that's uh, with all of these services, that's where it's going to go. The question really is, you know, what does that mean for startups, for banks? Yeah. Who wins in that? And you know, I imagine by, by vertical by vertical, it's going to be different. Um, okay. In some verticals, the B two C world will, you know, the B two C tech startup may win, and they'll find a way of delivering all the values their customers have in a way that's profitable. And that's really their biggest challenge, which is how do you make this thing profitable, acquire customers profitably. In other worlds, the banks may find that they can make simple enough adjustments, like reducing their FX rate by 20, 30 basis points in a way which means that suddenly TransferWise is non-competitive and yeah. actually everyone goes to their banks. Exactly. Um, and in other worlds, the banks and in startups might come together in some harmonious partnership which says actually we're able to work work with each other and deliver the value and the expertise you have through our distribution channels. You know, I think from, from my perspective, there's two parts of this that can't that will always be true. The one part of it is that customers will want things that are simpler, clearer, fairer. That's that's clear. On the flip side, Companies at some point need to become companies and yeah. not startups. Yeah. Right. So as long as you hold those two things true, yeah. the kind of journey will just be interesting to watch. Though. Then it sounds like you're bridging both worlds. <laughs> it's not easy to do, and and I I promise you, I'm sort of just like every entrepreneur out there. We've we've been on our journey yeah. of making our fair share of mistakes, investing too much in marketing, not quite getting our pricing right, uh, and learn from those mistakes, which I think is the most important thing to make sure we've got a model that does make sense and is profitable. Um, you know, and to be in a position where you're gross margin positive, actually, you understand what it means to get to profitability and you control your destiny and you can do that when the time's right. I think that's a, you know, it's an exciting position to be in. You know, ultimately, the lesson for me learned is even if you do want to continue on fundraising as a business, the strongest position you could put yourself in to fundraise is to be in that position. Yeah. And I think for some reason, we've come up over the last five or ten years as entrepreneurs thinking that when you build a VC-backed business, yeah. it's a different kind of business to a normal business. No, it's All still it going to make money. It's, it's, it's a normal business that basically has the opportunity to be put on, uh, to be put like on a speeded accelerator to grow, but it's still, it's still a normal <laughs> business and it still has to make sense. The fundamentals still have to make sense. What would you say are the three main habits that people could take away and start doing as, as good financial management? Put money aside regularly. Okay. And if you're in a world in which you don't receive money regularly, um, work to receive money regularly first. Yeah. But for me, you know, every every person in this country, if they have an income, should be saying five, ten, fifteen, twenty percent of that income goes aside every single month. Uh, the second is prep up for a rainy day. So if you speak to independent financial advisors, they say you should have at least three months of income locked away in an account that you never ever touch. That's not the savings pot that's for the holiday yeah. or the car that you want. That is your security money in case anything ever goes wrong. And okay. I think, especially the younger generation, just don't really recognize that as a need. And the yeah. problem and concern I have slightly is when they do come to recognize it, it's it'll too be too late. late. The third thing, and, and this is almost a lesson I wish I, I like I'd really got, I'd really understood is the importance of trying to find ways of putting your money in places in which it grows. Yeah. So I got to a point when I was younger where I'd saved up quite a lot of money and was trying to work out what to do with it and, and considered buying a house and in the end I didn't. When I look back now, I actually yeah. wish I'd taken that opportunity, <laughs> as I think most young people do, of, like, of actually buying that place. 
And, and I know that the, you know the thing that's really tough right now is the income to the house price ratios. Yeah, exactly. The income to house price ratios are completely broken. Yeah. Um, and so what what happens is when you're 23, if you have a job and you're earning 20, 25, 30 thousand pounds a year, you're net saving a grand, two and a half, five grand. You're like, for me to get to a deposit of 30, 40 thousand pounds. It's going to take me, uh, what's that? So it's going six, to take me seven years. Six, seven years. And that's a good, that's a good scenario. Yeah. In reality, like most places, including law, legal fees, you're talking about 10 to 15 years. What's the point? Uh, and, and so what they do is they then wait on the hope that they're going to increase their salary yeah. uh, and, and have a stable job, which three years later they decide is not stable and they want to change your hogs. Um, sorry. <laughs> and, and so you know, I've seen this time and time again. So that, you know, there are ways around this. If you're in a fortunate position where your parents can help you, Great, take the help, work with them. If not, you don't have to buy a house in London that costs three hundred fifty thousand pounds. I've seen, pro- I've seen literally, I saw a four bedroom house the other day in Birmingham, one hundred sixty thousand pounds. That's a deposit of twenty five thousand pounds for a four bedroom house. Yes, it comes with responsibilities, yeah. but do you know what? If you get to thirty and you have a four bedroom house in Birmingham which you don't live in, you rent out, and your interest rates have dropped, you're suddenly in the most incredible position to start thinking about remortgaging, stepping up the ladder. So I feel like there's going to be this real ticking time bomb uh, and it's got two parts to it, which is we're not taking the money we do earn and investing it, but also we are in a culture where we, we, we are spending lots mm. and we're not spending on the small things. The small mm. things will carry on. We're suddenly starting to talk about let's invest in ourselves and spend £3,000 going on a training course. Let's take £10,000 out and you know, spend two years doing this. And so you kind of, on the, both, both on the demand and supply yeah. side, there's going to be challenges and I think the result... Uh, the biggest impact will be on when our generation have children mm. and, and their ability to bring up their children in a, mm. in a financially stable environment. I don't know how it's going to play out. Sorry, it's a slightly pessimistic view of the world, but it's kind of the thing that we're trying to fix. <laughs> I also have to mention, by the way, Alec is wearing orange Osper socks. <laughs> I don't know if they're Osper branded, but they're definitely the same colour as the Osper orange card. But, we, um... we give away free orange socks to anyone in the company. <laughs> so like all my socks, socks as well. Yeah, they're not well, one ninety nine for mysocks.co.uk. So. <laughs> well, there we go. Um, this is some thoughts, so you know what's coming next. I'm going to have to ask you. Who you stalked and how did that go? <laughs> We've got a few people who joined the company um, where I, I met them and thought I would, I would love to have you on our business. Our first CTO was like this. Um, and so uh, I met him in a group setting. He said, oh, this is really interesting. He was very happy in his, in his job at the time. And I said, well, look, I'd love to pick a brain. Why don't you come, come you know, have a coffee with me? So we went and had a coffee. He said, it's really exciting. I said, look, you've got skills that are really relevant for us as we grow. Can I make you an advisor to the company? So I brought him as an advisor. It started off at kind of an hour a month and then slowly got to a point where he was coming in once a week. And then we closed around with funding. And I was like, I turned hey. to him and said, it's now time to have the conversation. He was like, I was expecting this to happen at some point in time. So um, I don't know if that's stalking or not. Uh, hopefully not, because we kind of it was a, it was a shared journey. But I think there is something about about, you know, as an entrepreneur, also thinking about your next horizon and your yeah. next horizons, and starting to when you meet people, you know, always being like, well, okay, you know, this person may be very senior, they may be very, you know, uh, right now providing an advisory role, but in three years' time, if we achieve the things that we expect, why would they not be the right person to join the company in this particular role? That, but that takes patience. It mm. takes time to build and, and invest in a relationship and get them on the journey. Mm. Um, so, so I've definitely had a few of those examples, yeah. So you mentioned earlier about some of the mistakes that, you know, as an entrepreneur you made. Um, but can you actually take us to your lowest point within OSPA? And, yeah, I guess how you dealt with that. So the highs and lows of an entrepreneur are, are daily. 
you know, and and even within a day, you can come in in the morning and be like, wow, what, you know, is we've making so many mistakes here. And at the end of the day, I think you're on top of the world. If I look at that arc when it's at Toughest, generally, I, th- I think most entrepreneurs who are in VC-backed businesses will agree, it generally comes in and around fundraising. Okay. Um, I, I think there's two potential sources of those arcs. Yeah. One, is, one is people and the other is fundraising. Okay. So uh, let's let's focus on the fundraising side. There are, the fundraising environment has been really tough in the last 12 to 18 months. I don't know a single company from seed stage up to round D who won't agree with that statement. Yeah. Um, and anyone who says I've had no issues fundraising. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, so I think you know, tough points are about really knowing how to grip through those, process. those processes, um, learning how to be flexible, learning how to find opportunities, how to put deals together in a way yeah. which ensures that you achieve what you want to. And, you know, and ultimately, you know, your, your job as an entrepreneur is to ensure you're growing, but if it's not growing, it's at least staying alive. So this is a quick fire question round, so I'm just going to blast some questions at you. First thing that comes to mind. Um, what was the last thing that inspired you? Uh, I recently read the autobiography behind, story behind Nike. And the story uh, of Night by Phil Knight. Shoe Dog. Yeah, Shoe Dog. And Phil's story is absolutely incredible. Okay. Um, he pushed that company to the brink. And his only his only singular focus was grow, grow, grow. So he would take on orders knowing that at the end of the month... He couldn't supply. He couldn't supply the orders. Pay. They yeah. never enough cash in. Yeah. And it was not, just a, not a company size of 20, mm. or not a company size of 50, but like two, three, four hundred... Um, and the thing that really impressed me is that throughout that whole journey, the one thing he refused to give way on is paying salaries at the end of the, at the end of the month, no matter what. He, no matter what, he'd he pay always paid his salaries exactly. But uh, but I thought his story was really phenomenal, and for a story which you know, for a company which a lot of people see today as an established global corporate and brand that's mm. recognised, to hear what that those first 10, 15 years of that journey was like, where yeah. he hustled just like any other entrepreneur, yeah. and it was nothing, and he was competing against big players at the time, I think it was Adidas, it's fa- fascinating. What fictional character do you remind yourself of? I've always, uh, so, so I'm not sure I, I'd say I'd remind myself of this person, but I've always loved, I've always loved the character, so uh, I don't know, so this, might be, this might prove my age, but um, there's a film called The Goonies, Okay. The Goonies. Mm. No, oh, wow. <laughs> classic late 80s feel of film. No, 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 it was about it was about a bunch of 11, 12, 13 year olds. It really is like a classic, and they go out and they find a, a treasure cave and they go and hunt for some treasure. Okay. And, um, and there's this the, the boy who's the leader of the group. Yeah. I mean, he just takes the stupidest risk along the journey, but something about him is really endearing. And, and everyone seems to be willing to like do things that they never otherwise have done because he, this guy won't stop until he gets he basically gets to where he wants to go. And uh, I've always I've always loved the idea of him. I'm not sure if I if I yeah. You know, See playing out in real life. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, cool. I'll check it out. Um, what tea do you drink? Uh, right now, I'm drinking a peppermint tea. Actually, what's your music jam at the moment? So I'm listening to James Blake right now, actually. Okay. Um, I don't normally listen to him. I'm a big neo soul fan, fan. So that's kind of new wave, new wave R and B collection of old school soul. So artists like Dwele, Jill Scott, folks like that. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then I guess, lastly, before leaving us, what would you say your alecisms are? So what would you say to anyone looking to disrupt either a new sector or, or get their idea or proposition? Uh, <laughs> off the ground and to the world. If you ask my team what are anarchisms, they'll probably say something like, uh, he always says, go, go, go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> always says, go, Just go, go. Just do. Don't 
Don't think. Go, go, go. I will have. um, Actually, very non consultant attitude, by the way. To someone who wants a consultant. I tried very hard to beat out my system. (laughs) (laughs) I um, actually, I think I sent three emails yesterday to my team who asked me questions, and I just went. I was probably saying go, 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 (laughs) which probably meant nothing, but it it was my indication of saying just do what you think makes sense. (laughs) So. uh, and I think to a certain degree that's probably it's something I'd say to people who are trying to get things up and running there's a risk sometimes that you just overthink yeah uh, and you try and play out all these scenarios and you know the truth of the answer is you don't, you just don't know and the only way of finding out is to, is to get it done and work it out along the way and I think it takes a really high level of of comfort with the unknown to do that so just yeah. getting comfortable with that world don't be afraid to ask for favours I think you know the number of people I've asked to help yeah. from and I, I always tell my team when we're trying to solve a problem I was like does anyone here actually know what we're doing if the answer's no then we should go and find someone who can help us and there's, okay. no, you know, there's no harm yeah. let's not pretend there's no harm, not there's, there's no harm. let's not yeah. pretend let's just go and go, you know, go and um, go and find some people who are experts so you're yeah, asking for help the other big thing is one of the things we set up within Osprey is something called CEO Talks okay so uh, I, I started running them at, wow a good couple of years ago but I yeah. took it off I said to the team, I made a promise to the team that I would go off and find CEOs. Uh, let me take a step back. I was having the opportunity through Osper to meet some great yeah. CEOs. Yeah. And in fact, many CEOs, like, so people like Tab from Transwise, Samir from Funding Circle, yeah. are all investors in Osper. Okay. So I met them, I learned a lot about their story, yeah. took that into Osper, and we used that. And, and actually, I felt like there was an opportunity to take some of these learning lessons and pass them directly through to the team. Because I'd often come back and say, oh, I just spoke to Samir, and this is what I learned. Yeah. Like, actually, have we thought about this in this way? So uh, we started CEO Talks, where I committed to the company that every couple of months I'd get a new CEO in to come in and talk to the business about their journey. Uh, and they're kind of chat and rules, so the CEOs okay. really do open up yeah. uh, with with the stories that they share. So we've had people like Alex Asaley, who's the co-founder of Jawbone, come in, and he talked to us about how you know Jawbone went through a journey of being 28 people, being reduced down to him, you know, a threat from investors to shut down the company to two years later turning over a hundred million dollars and what that was like. Yeah. And when people think of see Joel Monte, they have no idea yeah. about that background. And we had people like Remus come in, Samir came in, we had a, one of our French investors came in whose first business was the licensing of Tamagotchis in France. He owned the general license of Tamagotchi. Amazing. He now runs a hundred million dollar quality assurance company in China. So it's just <laughs> really fascinating yeah. to hear some of the of these talks. So I think uh, one of the other things I just suggest is don't be afraid to learn from people who've yeah. taken the path that you you're hoping to take. Okay. Well, thank you so much no for being with us today. No problem. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Please do reach out on @samirastalks on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And feel free to email me on samira@samirastalks.com to let me know your thoughts. For more episodes on startup founders making products to equip our children for the 21st century, do check out episode 7 from the back catalog with the inventor of Carno, a computer kit teaching kids to code. Join me next week for another episode. Bye.